0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,119 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our ongoing series of messages that I've delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week one on a 14-week series from the book of James titled, Wisdom is faith in action. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Well, we do thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for investing time, fellowshipping with believers, and learning of God's Word. And as I mentioned last week, we are beginning a new series today about the Proverbs of the New Testament, better known as the Book of James. This letter is chalked full of practical wisdom on how to live a life as a radical disciple, which we talked about during our series in August. Today I want to provide you just with some background of who James is, and he, why he is so uniquely fit to author the very first book that was written in the New Testament. Since most of the lesson today just sets the stage, For the book, we're not going to get into much of it. We're actually going to only look at one verse today. So if you'll turn to page 1880 in your pew Bibles, I'll be reading that here in a moment. And since today's study is just an introduction, it's going to be somewhat academic in nature, a little bit different than the past few weeks as we explore in subsequent weeks the depths of wisdom that's found in the book of James. So if you'll read along with me, James chapter 1, verse 1, in the New International Version, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. And let me also read it from the New Living Translation, which I usually use for my personal devotions. It says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the twelve tribes, the Jewish believers scattered abroad. We live in a world where politics rule the day, and a a person's public reputation is too often drowns out their actual personal reality. Who, Who you know tends to trump what you know. Name dropping often gets you farther than your skills and talents do. And these are sort of cynical sayings, but they not only apply in the political realm, where quid quo pro is the status quo. Unfortunately, this good old boy network or system tends to corrupt most areas of business, academia, entertainment, and yes, even within the church. And this is why the opening words of the book of James are so refreshing. It's like a cool breeze, spring breeze, as you open up the rooms after a winter and you air out those musty rooms. This unassuming nature of the first few words drives out arrogance, ego, and presumption that we might have. It was written by a a man who could drop names, the name above all names. But in this simple, straightforward greeting sets a tone for a letter that assaults our natural human tendencies towards sin and selfishness with a radical message of authenticity and humility that begs the question in today's message is, who is James? From the very first phrase, the name James, this short letter presents us with a problem. Which James wrote the letter? And unfortunately, this humble self-identification of James, a bondservant or slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, really doesn't tell us much, does it? So unless you were among those who first received his letter, we're left with some old-fashioned investigation to determine which James actually penned these words in the New Testament. Now, if you run through the New Testament, you'll find at least four people or four men with the name of James. Now, it's relatively easy to rule out a couple of them. James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, never appears in the New Testament except for Luke chapter 6, verse 16. And then the other was James, the son of Alphaeus, probably also known as James the Little or James the Less. And though, although he was one of the 12 disciples of Christ, he disappeared from the biblical account after the Upper Room of experience, experience at Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, verse 13 was the last mention of him. So these two can be safely dismissed, as unlikely candidates for authorship of the book of James, or the letter of James. So that leaves us with two others. James, the son of Zebedee, which was the brother of the apostle John, or James, the half-brother of Jesus. Through the first James, he was known as one of the sons of thunder, and he provided significant leadership role in the infant church as one of Christ's inner three. You hear it over and over in the Gospels. Peter, James, and John. So this was James, the son of Alphaeus. He was one of the 12, but he was also the first of the apostles to suffer martyrdom. He was killed under the rule of Herod Agrippa. And that occurred in about A.D. 44. And since he was, occurred in A.D. 44, that was before the book of James was written. And that also furthered scattering of the Jewish Christians throughout the Roman world, as we're told in Acts chapter 12. And shortly after this persecution, Jesus' half-brother James stepped up to lead the persecuted church of Jerusalem. And this is found throughout the book of James, where James, a half-brother of Jesus, is mentioned. James lived with Jesus in a home with Joseph and Mary, and he likely penned the letter that we know as the book of James in the New Testament. This identification as the author, as the half-brother of Jesus, goes back even to the earliest Bible scholars of the first century. All agreed, and throughout ages, that James was the author of this, the brother of Jesus. And even today, most conservative New Testament scholars would agree with this. And moreover, the tone and the content of this letter is very similar to the same tone and wording when James is quoted in the book of Acts. So he is a well-known leader among the original Jewish Christian Church. So we've identified, let's settle on it, that James, the brother of Jesus, was the author of this letter. What do we know about him? Well, first, let's try to construct a meaningful picture of his life. He was the second-born son of Joseph and Mary. And no second-born son or daughter can fathom what it must be like to suffer that second-child syndrome where the older brother is one who never sinned. Now, I know you probably can't see this very well, but this is Buddy with his large mouth open and our other kids around him. They all look very happy. I can imagine. And Buddy was, from an intellectual standpoint, in Bible quizzes, he was pretty good at those. And it... Impacted the other four somewhat, I think. But can you imagine being James in the household? So let me set a modern-day scenario. Jesus always comes when his mother calls the very first time. He always washes his hands properly, as the Jewish tradition would require it. He always won, and the Bible drills at Awana, and everybody wanted him on their team. He always obeyed. He did his chores quickly and correctly and with delight. Then there was James, born with a sinful nature like the rest of us, living in the shadow of his big brother who was God in the flesh. And being far from perfect, this younger brother James had a built-in problem with Jesus right from the start. And I suppose in my own mind that James was happy when he saw Jesus finally leave home as an adult, especially when he wandered out into the wilderness for 40 days and no one knew where he was. He probably wasn't too disappointed. But then, as the passage that Paula read, this already strange older brother came back to his hometown claiming to be the long-awaited fulfillment of the Messianic promises in Luke chapter 4. And how do you think James felt about his older brother then? Well, we don't have to wonder about that, because in John chapter 7, verse 5 says, even his, fo- his brothers did not believe in him. And we drill down even more in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, tells us that his siblings thought he was a lunatic. And the scripture says, when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Reminds me of the old movie or whatever it was. They're coming to take me away. Because they thought he was out of his mind. And as a side note, another brother that was mentioned wrote the, the letter of Jude, was also one of Jesus' half-brother. And he starts out his letter with, this is a letter from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Though throughout the Gospels, we see James in a state of unbelief and skepticism over his older brother. But things didn't stay that way. And praise God, they didn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, the Apostle Paul gives this account. When speaking of Jesus, he says, Then he was seen by James, and later by all the other apostles. I picture Jesus putting his arm around, after his resurrection, putting his arm around James and whispering words of love into his ear, words of concern and encouragement, saying, that's okay of what you thought about me in the past. It doesn't matter anymore. In any case, Jesus' disciples gathered in the upper room after the Lord's ascension to heaven, and James and all of his brothers sat among them, because Acts chapter 114 tells us, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So, all of his brothers more than likely came to a believing faith in Jesus as the Messiah. James experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the subsequent growth of the church in Jerusalem, even amid the persecution that's mentioned in Acts chapters 3 through 9. James was undoubtedly very active in the Jerusalem church when Stephen was arrested and later martyred for his faith, as described in Acts chapter 6 and 7. So James would have been aware of a young, zealous rabbinical student named Saul of Tarsus, who supported the brutal death of Stephen and further exploits than that, as mentioned in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. To think what James would have thought about Saul of Tarsus at that point. But after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, the Jerusalem church accepted Barnabas' testimony and received Saul, who was now called Paul, as a member of the Christian community, and they even welcomed him into the apostolic fellowship as one of the apostles. It was noteworthy worthy of Saul. First, sought out James at this gathering. In Galatians chapter one, verse nineteen, Paul wrote, "The only other apostle I met at the time was James, the Lord's brother. Perhaps James." recalled his own stubborn refusal to accept Christ as the Messiah. But but like Saul of Tarsus, James finally came around. God's work of grace had grabbed his heart and made him look at his brother in a whole new light. And it was thought about 10 to 15 years after the ascension of Christ that he penned this now letter of wisdom that we're going to study over the next few weeks, the very first book written in the New Testament. It's a short practical wisdom manual of Christian living that we refer to as the book of James or the letter from James. And then around 49 AD, the disputed, dispute erupted within the church that threatened to break up the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles In Acts chapter 15, verse 1 tells us, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, the men of Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Naturally, this addition of circumcision to the gospel troubled Paul and Barnabas because they were out preaching that it wasn't necessary to be circumcised. They were preaching the simple message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any type of works. And wanting to set the record straight, Paul and Barnabas immediately went to to Jerusalem to consult the apostles and the elders, including Peter and Christ's brother James. And when Paul made his case to the leaders of Jerusalem, Peter concurred with them, reminding them how, how God had saved the Gentiles Strictly by faith, when he preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family. So, after Paul and Barnabas reported on their miraculous ministry to the Gentiles, James himself stood up and supported Peter and also Paul. And I'm just going to read the first or three of the verses out of this passage. It's Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. It says, Everyone listen quietly. As Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, then when they had finished, James stood and said, "Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them for a people of Himself, and this conversion to the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted." And after these this, these verses, James goes on to quote passages from Amos and Isaiah. James' wise and convincing words became the basis for the Jerusalem Council, its decision to affirm Paul's gospel of salvation of grace alone through faith alone. In agreement with Paul and Barnabas, the Jerusalem apostles and elders rejected the addition of any type of works to the gospel message. And aren't we so grateful that, that he did? However, to maintain unity between the Jewish and Gentile believers, the Jerusalem Council did ask the Gentiles, those converts, to Christianity to avoid practices that might offend some of the Jews and prevent them from coming to Christ. So stated succinctly, James wanted to ensure that God-honoring works authenticated their genuine faith. Because the book of James has a lot about works, but it's not works for our salvation. James was a Jew living in Jerusalem, leading the Jewish believers in Jerusalem in that church. And he continued himself to keep the law of Moses, along with a lot of others who were referred to as Messianic Jews. Those who were Jews, but they believed Christ was the Messiah, they continued to practice many of the laws of Moses, but they didn't make him a requirement on the Gentiles. Though the law was not a means of salvation, James and many Jewish believers felt it was a means of testimony to unbelieving Jews that their faith empowered them to do good works. Nevertheless, James' authentic faith eventually became the death of him. His steadfast faith in Christ, demonstrated through his good works, strengthened through his own sufferings, and seasoned with his God-given wisdom, drew the increasingly anger of the zealous and religious elite of his day. And nevertheless, his words and works attracted thousands of Jews to believe that Christ was the Messiah. But the anti-Christian powers in Jerusalem eventually said, that's enough. We've had enough of you, James. Josephus, an early Jewish um, historian, reports that James was simply stoned but Eusebius recounts that he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then clubbed to death. James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred for his faith around A.D. 62. Less than around 30 years after Christ ascended to heaven. In this brief overview of James's life, let's preview the letter. We're going to get into the letter starting next week, but let's preview it a little bit that we'll delve into in subsequent weeks. In light of James' pedigree, his position, his kinship, his legacy, imagine how he could have started this letter. I want to give you four examples of what he could have said. James, from the giant tribe of Judah, the house of David, of the royal lines of the kings of Judah. Or he might have started his letter saying, James, the eldest brother of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Or maybe he could have written James, the pastor of the first Christian church of the world. And lastly, he could have written James, a longtime associate of Peter, James, John, and Paul, and the rest of the apostles. Yes, James could have dropped names of all kinds. He could have pulled rank. He could have impressed his readers with ego-inflating titles. But as we will see as we unpack this letter, this kind of pride was one of the things that James railed against most vehemently. That may be the style of this me first world today, but it wasn't the style of James. So instead, he began his letter, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was a bond servant, servant in the Greek word doulos. This word means an indentured servant or slave that could have been free but chose to remain under his master. This is not a prized position within the class of society in the day of the Romans. But James did not think or regard that slavery to God and submission to Jesus Christ would be a burden or a curse, but a glorious honor for himself. So after introducing himself as James, He then addresses his audience, which was a typical opening for the letters of that day. And who, to whom was this letter written? It is clear, I'm writing to the twelve tribes, the Jewish believers that are scattered abroad. And although most of the historically historical twelve tribes had lost their distinction, the twelve tribes of Israel lost their distinction and identity centuries earlier during the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities and exile, the term, the 12 tribes of Israel, continued to be used as a figure of speech referring to the children of Israel throughout the entire world, because they had been spread throughout the entire Roman world of the day, every part of the known world. And this phrase, scattered abroad, reinforces that James was primarily addressing Jewish Christians, many of whom probably he had known in Jerusalem before they were scattered due to the persecuted church by the many and the unbelieving Jewish authorities. James calls his readers brothers several times throughout this letter, indicating that he was indeed addressing fellow believers in Jesus, not merely all the Jews spread throughout the Roman world. So James was a Jewish believer writing to Jewish believers within the first century who were scattered abroad, which is diaspora. If I don't pronounce these quite right, I'm sure Dan could help, help me with the terminology on these, which means scattered, scattered throughout like you would sow seeds in a garden or grass seed out. You were scattered abroad throughout the entire Roman world. And it was due to the numerous exiles from the Promised Land. In addition, about this time, the Roman Emperor Claudius persecuted the Jews of Rome and drove them out of the city. This is when the great persecution began for the Christians in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, actually. Jewish businesses were boycotted. The Jewish children were mocked and thrown out of their schools during this time. Times were harsh. And life was grim. So Jewish Christians, like the people who, to whom James wrote this letter, seemed to be living under a double diaspora. Not only were they subject to Roman anger because they were Jewish, but many of them were je- driven out of their own Jewish communities, which they were family members of, because of their faith in the Messiah. More than others, the Jewish believers lived without roots, and traveled outside Judea looking for just a place where they could call home, to establish a community. And as a result, many of these men and women found themselves as social and religious outcasts. They found themselves in limbo. And I do believe suffering purifies and matures us, but I also believe that a relentless and extreme suffering can confuse and even crush us. Many of these Jewish believers began to grow wary, tempted to turn their backs on their Jewish roots or even defect from their faith in Christ. Many claimed to believe the truth of God concerning the Lord Jesus, but because of the pressure, they began to live a lie. In this context of suffering, confusion, and defection, it's not surprising that James felt compelled to write this strong appeal to the Jewish believers. Remember, this letter is not a doctrinal treatise, not a defense of the gospel regarding the person or work of Christ, and it's not a retelling of the Christian story. This letter assumes that the reader already knew those things. Instead, James penned this letter about authentic faith that's lived out in a hostile world. The central theme of the book of James is that real faith produces genuine works, as you see in your bulletin, I put wisdom is faith in action, and that's our theme for this entire series. Wisdom is faith in action, and that's where encompasses or encapsulates the purpose of the Book of James. In other words, a person who has found genuinely in faith must walk in faith. If you claim I have come to Jesus Christ, He is my Lord and Savior. James answers, Then let your life be evidence of this truth. Let your outward acts reflect your inward reality. Justify your faith before others by your good works. When we realize the overarching theme of the book of James, it will help us when we drill down into the various passages that we'll study in the next few weeks why it all makes sense. We're not going to cherry-pick verses out of James. We're going to go through the entire book and study it in depth. In the book of James, it's actually broken out into four different major sections. The first section, James tells his readers that real faith produces genuine stability. When real faith is stretched, it doesn't break, but it perseveres. James supports this claim in the three examples, which we'll cover in the next three weeks. First, he shows that trials and tribulations in life not destroy faith, but will deepen it and cause it to grow. Second, James will remind us that we can face temptation through our genuine faith. And third, he will explain that true believers respond to God's word positively, changing their lives to conform to its truth. And those three sections are all found in the first chapter of James. The second major major section starts in the second chapter of James and runs through James 3, verse 12. And in this section, James argues that real faith produces genuine love. When true faith is pressed by various circumstances, social challenges, and personal struggles, it does not fail. Instead, it produces responses to put others first. Genuine faith takes a stand against prejudices. It justifies itself through obedience and action. It bridles that beastly tongue that each of us have. And genuine faith does not produce passive, wimpy pushovers, but a daring and durable force of love and action. The third section of James asserts that real faith produces genuine humility. And this is chapter 3, 13 through 5, 6. He contrasts worldly ambition with heavenly wisdom. One results in envy and strife which we all deal with. The other is righteousness and peace. James also lends some practical advice on overcoming worldly behavior within the church, including behavior that brings division. He then encourages his rea- readers to overcome boasting with true humility before God. And he warns us, warns those who are wealthy, to live responsibly with their riches. And then the last and the fourth section that we will cover some weeks from now, Jesus, uh, James reaffirms that the truth, that real faith produces genuine patience. And that's chapter five through the end of the book. Those Jewish Christians distressed by faith-challenging circumci- circumstances, sorry, <laughs> faith-challenging circumstances, needed to hear that uh, this assurance over and over. They had to be reminded about it, just like we do every day. James encourages his readers to be patient in suffering in the light of the Lord's coming, whether it's soon or far away. He encouraged us to seek physical and spiritual wholesomeness. And he ends in a profound, this profoundly practical letter with the admonition to steer wayward believers back onto the right path. I'm excited about our study in these subsequent weeks, in the book of James. James reminds me so much of the book of Proverbs, and I love the book of Proverbs, which I read through a chapter of it every day. James gives us that same wisdom, that same insight. Wisdom is faith in action. Next week, we'll look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, and I would encourage you to read it during this week, because it covers the trials of life. And don't we all go through those? Just look at our prayer list. We deal with trials in our lives. And as we drill down those promises in James, we'll see how we can, as believers in Jesus Christ, withstand a troubled world, those trials of our life. Let us close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your brother James. We thank you that he wrote this letter to the Jewish believers that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire of the day. We thank you for the practical wisdom that he gives us in this book. And just we pray as we study it in the next several weeks that we'll learn the wisdom you want us to learn, that we'll apply to our hearts and our lives, that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. As we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously